Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's turn to John, John chapter 12. We're going to be in John chapter 12, verse 12. And before we get into the Word, uh, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy, for your grace. God, I am so overwhelmed by the truth that regardless of what happens in this life, regardless of the circumstances that I face and the trials that come my way, and even the travesty and the sadness that I might have to deal with, regardless of any of it, it is well with my soul. Not because of anything that I have done, but because what you, Lord Jesus, have done on my behalf. You have secured me by taking all of my sins and taking it upon yourself and dying and paying it in full with your precious blood. And Lord, as we get to this text and we find out that you are also king, that you are a righteous, victorious, and yet at the same time, a humble king. And you do not ride in with a conquering horse as you have subdued all the people under your feet, but you ride in on a donkey. And you have laid down your life for your subjects. What kind of king is this? A king we've never heard of, but he is the king of all kings. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, can, can that truth, can that beautiful, glorious truth just hit us as we behold you as our king? Can you speak to us and confront some of our struggles and our fears? Can you help us to take our focus off of ourselves and put our focus on you, King Jesus? Can you help us to die to self and live for you? Holy Spirit, can you open up our ears, our eyes, and our hearts? Can you help us to understand the truth of this text? Can you convict us of our sins? Can you confront all of our idols? And can you help us lay those idols down at the feet of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior? So come, Lord, and speak, and help us to listen and understand. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. We're in John chapter 12, verse 12, as we're continuing through our series, Through the Gospel of John. And again, what John is trying to show us, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And now we're getting to the point of the, the book in John where no longer Jesus is revealing his glory, but now Jesus is receiving glory from the Father. And so last week as we entered into chapter 12, we're coming to the final week of Jesus's life on this earth. And while the other gospel writers really are focusing on the events that led into this final week, John is more interested in the interactions that Jesus had with these people. 
And so last week we saw how Mary came and she anointed Jesus' body with costly perfume. And Mary did more than what she actually knew. She, she meant this to be an act of humble devotion as she was expressing her love and adoration for Jesus. And Jesus receives this honor because he knew that his burial and the cross was close by. And she, he says, leave her alone, for she has done a beautiful thing, for she has anointed my body. And while Mary did all of this, we see the disciples, and John really draws our attention to one disciple named Judas, as he is in indignation of all that is happening, thinking, what a waste of money, that this money should have been used on the poor. And really what John is trying to show us, he's trying to show us a contrasting picture between Mary and Judas. Here we see Mary's at the feet of Jesus, adoring him in love, offering extravagant gifts. Uh, gifts and devotion, anointing his body, while Judas, on the other hand, is just sitting there in condescending arrogance, not only questioning Mary, but also questioning Jesus that he would receive such an honor. And while Jesus is being honored by Mary, the religious leaders are plotting against Jesus because they're losing popularity. Jesus seemed to be gaining followers. And now after Lazarus' resurrection, still more are putting faith in him. And really what's happening, all of this is preparing for the praise that Jesus would receive at his triumphal entry. And so today, this is the text we're going to look at. Not only is Jesus going to be honored by Mary, as we saw last week, but now he's going to be honored by all the people as king. And what was really significant is, is that he does not run away from this honor, but rather he receives this honor and redirect this honor and showing the people what type of king he is. So, so let's look at our story in John chapter 12, verse 12. It says this, The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So let's stop here and unpack it. So the city of Jerusalem is hustling and bustling with hordes of people as everybody is coming from all over the scattered ancient world to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, Josephus, a Jewish historian, reports to us that at one Passover, there was over 2.7 million Jews that gathered together to celebrate the Passover. And this doesn't include the Gentiles who lived in the city of Jerusalem, who might have just been in that city for a different occasion. So even though, let's say hypothetically, those numbers might be a little inflated, he might be over-exaggerating a little bit, the point is that there are tons of people gathering Jews from all over the world to celebrate this Passover. And when they heard that Jesus was on his way from Bethany, they did not wait in Jerusalem to meet him, but rather they left the city out on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem to come and meet Jesus. And many people might have heard of Jesus and heard of his ministry. Many might have heard about the raising of Lazarus or Jesus opening up the eyes of the man born blind. And so many eagerly sought an opportunity to see Jesus. 
And since they traveled all these miles to celebrate the Passover, and now Jesus is nearby, what an opportunity to meet the man who can open up the eyes of the blind and raise the dead. So they go out to meet him. But John tells us, what do they grab? They grab, look at our text, they grab palm branches. What's the significance of palm branches? Now, now normally palm branches is not associated with the Passover festival, but rather it's associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so you'll have some scholars that say, see, this triumphal entry did not happen during the Passover, but rather during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're saying, see all the errors that's in the Gospel of John. We can't believe it. But what we have to understand is this, is that before the, the Feast of Passover, the, before the Feast of Tabernacles, two centuries earlier, palm branches became a national symbol of hope. And it first started when Simon the back Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem. And in celebration, the people gathered singing, making music, and grabbing palm branches and waving it as it was a symbol of hope. And when they rededicated the temple after it was defiled by the Syrians and by Antiochus Epiphanes, they rededicated it with music and the waving of palm branches. And so my point is, let's not just diss the gospel of John let's look at what is the significance of these palm branches and we see as we study history is that these palm branches became a symbol of nationalistic hope of a messiah a liberator that is going to come and deliver them and so in a sense Simon the Maccabee was a type of deliverer that delivered the people from the Syrian forces And now they're hearing Jesus coming in. And what is immediately jumping to their mind? Here is a liberator. Here is a Messiah that is coming here. All of our nationalistic hope is wrapped up in this person. And so let's grab these palm branches and let's celebrate that the Messiah has come as they're waving it in hopes of salvation. But then John tells us also, look at what they kept shouting as they're waving these palm branches. It says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now the word Hosanna literally means, Lord, give salvation now. So as they're shouting, Lord, give salvation now, they're also saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was a song that was taken out of Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26. This is what it says in Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. But here, what is the crowd saying? They're saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. And then they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, what they're doing is they're not just simply pronouncing a blessing in the name of the Lord of the one who comes, but rather a blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they further kind of pronounce what they actually mean by 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, bring salvation now. Where this is not a quote of the psalm, but this is what they say. Look at the last part of verse verse 13. What does it say? The king of, of Israel. So what do they mean by the grabbing of the palm branches? By the shouting of, Lord, bring salvation now. By saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, this Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord. He is coming from the Lord himself. What they're saying is, this is the king of Israel. And so due to this nationalistic zeal, the people identified Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited liberator that's going to set them free from the power of Rome and restore Israel to the glory days. As they lifted up their palm branches, as they are singing and shouting and praying, salvation has come. Save us now. Set us free. Liberate us from this evil oppression called Rome. As they sang the words of Psalm 118. And in a sense, Jesus came to do what? He came to save them. But he didn't come to save them from the political salvation, but rather he came to save their hearts. Now, now one of the things that's really interesting is throughout the book of John, Anytime there was any identification of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the liberator, Jesus as the king, what would Jesus normally do? Do you remember that? What, do we do? what would he do? He would run. He would hide. You, you look at John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the multitudes, he sent his disciples away and Jesus disappeared because he realized that they said, here is a prophet and they by force want to make him king. So what did he do? He ran away, but now what's happening? They're saying he is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And normally you would think Jesus is going to run away, but he doesn't. Instead, what he's now going to do, instead of running away from that title and all of that uh, uh, kind of murmur of that and the significance of it, what he's going to do is now redirect of what type of king he is. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll notice there's some irregularities with John's writing because in the other gospel writings before the triumphal entry what did Jesus do he sent his disciples ahead of time to go and get a donkey a donkey that no one has ever written just you'll see it he's tied go and untie him and if anybody asks you what are you doing just say the Lord needs it and so they would go and they brought the donkey and Jesus sat on it and rode in it as people were shouting but here John kind of cuts out all the arrangements and just briefly tells us Jesus found a donkey why why did Jesus do it Why did John not give us all of these details? Because, again, John cares more about the symbolic importance of him riding on a donkey than on the details of how he 
acquired the donkey. So it doesn't mean it did not happen. It probably did happen. John just wants to get straight to the point. What does it mean for him to be riding on a donkey? What does it symbolize? And so the reason why Jesus came riding on a donkey immediately after the crowd identified him as the Messiah is the first reason is this, is to dampen down the nationalistic expectation. To dampen down the nationalistic expectation. What was their expectations of Jesus? To deliver them. But to deliver them from what? Roman power, Roman rule. In other words, they expected a conquering king riding in on a war horse with a sword ready to do battle against Rome. But instead, he rides in on a donkey, which I can guarantee you probably made lots of people scratch their heads. If he is king, if he is the liberator we've been waiting for, shouldn't it be a horse? Or maybe it's the new trend. But again, the first reason was to dampen down the expectations. The second reason is this, to show the people what kind of king Jesus is. And the last one is to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. And as we read in the part of our assurance, Zechariah 9, verse 9, this is what John quotes in Zechariah 9, verse 9. If we look at the original passage, Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout and triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But then also look at verses 10 and verse 11. It says, he will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant blood that the Lord made with his people, he will free their prisoners from the waterless pit. So in other words, from this passage in Zechariah 9, which Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy in this passage, this is the type of king that Jesus is communicating to the people and to us what he is. So if you're taking notes from our passage in Zechariah, what kind of king is Jesus? He is a righteous, victorious, and humble or gentle king. What kind of king is he? He's a righteous king. He's a victorious king. But he's also a humble king or a gentle king. He's not some tyrannical ruler, military ruler, who rides on a war horse celebrating his conquest. And the people that are cheering him in, he conquered. But rather, what kind of king he is? He is a humble king who comes riding in on a donkey. He came to serve and to love and to sacrifice himself for his subjects. Like, just think about, when we think about a king, A reason a king rules over us is because he has conquered us. We are enslaved to that king. And the reason why there's the procession of the king and why everybody is kind of celebrating the king because it's a reminder that he has conquered us and anybody who opposes this king will himself be conquered or put to death. But that's not Jesus. 
Jesus comes riding on a donkey. And he didn't conquer his subjects, but rather he died for them. And the reason why we can celebrate him as king is not because he conquered us and we do it out of fear, but rather because he laid down his life for us. And this is what it communicates by Jesus riding on a donkey, showing us from Zechariah the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is righteous, victorious, and humble. And I love those three words together because it's easy for us to see, oh, he's riding on a humble donkey. Clearly, he's not going to get very far. No, the prophecy says he is a victorious king, a righteous king, and a humble king. The, 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 the second type of king that Jesus is, if you're taking notes, if we look at Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10 to 11, it says this, that, is that Jesus' kingship is associated with a cessation of war. His kingship is associated with a cessation of war. Like if you look at verse 10, Zechariah 9, verse 10, it says, He will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. Like why would there be no need for horses and chariots and bows or any kind of weaponry? Because there will be no longer war. And if there's no needs for weapons because there's no war. And this is kind of the type of king he is. In his kingship, all war will end. And a result of all the war that will end that leads us to the third type of king he is in his kingship. If you're taking notes, it's associated with the proclamation of peace to the nations. The proclamation of peace to the nations. In other words, Jesus is not just a king where all war will end and peace is proclaimed to the Jewish nation, but rather peace is proclaimed to who? All the nations. Like, think about this. Here is King Jesus, righteous and victorious, humble. In his rule, all wars will end. And there will be a proclamation of peace throughout the world. Not just peace in this little area or in that little area, and that's the war zone, and he's shielding us from the war zone, but rather all wars will end, and peace will be for all the nations. Which leads us to the last point of what kind of king he is. If you're taking notes, is that Jesus' kingship extends to the ends of the earth. Verse 11 says, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. What part will he rule? Everything. Which, what made a king powerful? The areas that he ruled. And what area will Jesus rule? Every single area. What a victorious king, a righteous king, a humble king, where all, all the wars will end, peace will be proclaimed, and his rule will be extended to the ends of the earth. All of this, Jesus was proclaiming as he was riding on a donkey.
Now the reality of it is the disciples and John's going to tell us the disciples did not understand any of it. And if the disciples did not understand any of us, we can assume that the crowds did not understand any of us. Look, look at what John tells us in verse 16 uh, after Jesus is riding, sitting on a donkey, using Zechariah 9, saying this is the prophet, prophecy that Jesus fulfills. Verse 16 says this, His disciples did not understand the things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This was also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees say, uh, said to one another, You see, you have accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so John identifies the disciples had no idea what was going on. They had no idea of the nature of Jesus' kingship and the inevitability of the cross. But eventually they did understand when? After his glorification. After his glorification, after his death, burial, resurrection, in short, his glorification the things begin to make sense. Now, the crowds, in the midst of all of this hype and this nationalistic zeal of the king coming, the crowds were flocking. They were coming to him. And then John points us to what was going on with the Pharisees. What were the Pharisees doing as they're seeing Jesus' popularity is growing and their political instability and their popularity is becoming more and more fragile? They, with an over-exaggeration, in verse 19 says this, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And while their statement is an over-exaggeration, because literally not the whole world was going after him, if you think about it, there's also some ironic truth. Because who did Jesus come for? Who did he come to rescue? Where will his rule extend? To the ends of the earth. And so in a sense, as they were over-exaggerating, saying the whole world is going after him, in a sense what they were saying was true, because he did come for the world. He did come for the nations. And then what John does to show us more of the irony of the statement of the Pharisees, look at the people who meets Jesus after the triumphal entry. Look at verse 19. Who are the people that, that uh, I'm sorry, verse 20. Who are the, the first people that meet Jesus? Now some Greeks or Gentiles. And who did they represent in a sense? The world. Uh, let, let's, let's read that passage and see what's going on. It says this, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went on to told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So, so more than likely, these Greeks were either Gentiles, God-fearers, or they were proselytes. In other words, they were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. 
And what they wanted to do is they wanted to see Jesus. Why did they want to see Jesus? Well, John doesn't really tell us. All he tells us is they want to see him. In other words, they want to interview him. They want to sit down with him because they have some questions. Maybe their curiosity was stirred when they heard all the buzz around town. Or if you look at the other um, Gospels, what happened after Jesus' triumphal entry? What happened in all the other Gospel writers' triumphal entry, Jesus did and cleared what? He went out and cleared out the temple. So maybe, John doesn't record it, so maybe there's a time lapse between verse 19, what the Pharisees said, and verse 20, the Greeks said, and maybe they were seeing Jesus clearing out the temple, and they're saying that my father's house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. And maybe they wanted clarity because they were god fears because they were proselytes they still remain gentiles which means they could not enter into the inner temple court they can only be on the outside and now that jesus is clearing it out saying my father's this temple is my father's house a house of prayer for the nations maybe it's stirring their curiosity of does that mean now we can worship as well since this is a house for the nations and maybe they wanted clarity for it But again, John doesn't tell us. All he tells us is that these Greeks found Philip. Philip didn't really know how to handle with the situation. He goes ahead and finds Andrew. Andrew is unclear of how to deal with the situation. And so they both go to Jesus. And they tell Jesus, there are some Greeks who want to see you. The Greek word for want to see you is they want to interview you. They have some questions for you. And then what we're going to see in verse 21, I'm sorry, verse, verse, yeah, verse 23, is that Jesus doesn't really respond to their request. But notice what he says of all of this is happening, what a trigger. Look at verse 23, and we're almost done. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Remember the phrase, the hour? Throughout John, what have we read about the hour? We've always read the hour has not yet come. The Jews tried to arrest him. And what did John tell us? The hour has not yet come. In other words, it always has been in the far future. And the hour always have symbolized the appointed time of Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation. In short, his glorification. But now, these Greeks requested to meet with him. Does Jesus say yes, yay or nay? He doesn't say anything. What does he say? He says, the hour has come. It's almost as if this Greek request triggered something for Jesus to say, my hour has come. It's time for me to be glorified. And this glorification is going to happen in the most unexpected way. If Jesus is king, how is a king glorified? How is a king exalted? 
Normally, he's exalted in a palace, sitting on his golden throne, and a military parade happening in his presence as they're all saying, Hail to the king. But how would Jesus be glorified? Not on a throne, not in a palace, not with a military parade, but on the bloody cross. If you think about this, how would King Jesus, who is righteous, victorious, and humble, how would he accomplish the cessation of war, the proclamation of peace to the ends of the nations, establish his rule and his reign to the ends of the earth? Not by conquering it, but by dying. And through his death, he will be glorified. And this is the point that Jesus is making. This is why Jesus uh, kind of, in a sense, depicts his death of that of a grain of wheat. What does a grain of wheat do? It dies. And when it dies, what does it do? It produces a great harvest. In other words, there's a strong connection between this grain of wheat and Jesus. As Jesus is dying, there's a strong connection between his death and him being glorified. In other words, Jesus' glorification is not, tied to his, is, is not tied to him seeking his own glory, but his glorification is tied always to do the will of the Father, walking in obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of death. And just like a seed that dies, germinates, and provides an abundance of harvest, so Jesus dies. And he provides a rich harvest. And as the seed that dies, a rich harvest comes. In a sense, the seed is vindicated because there is use to that seed dying. So Jesus who dies is glorified because through his death there is a rich harvest. And so basically here's the principle. The principle that Jesus applies to himself and the principle that now Jesus is going to apply to his followers, if you're taking notes, is this. Death is the necessary condition for the generation of life. Death is the necessary condition for the generation of life. Think about that principle. Jesus applies it to himself. How does he apply it to himself? By saying, in order to generate life for people, what does he have to do? He has to die. And it's only through his death where there will be life. But now, he turns it around on his followers, a.k.a. his disciples, a.k.a. to us. Look at verse Verse 25. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what is Jesus doing? Basically, he's reemphasizing this principle. Death is the necessary condition for generating life. 
And he turns it around to his followers, and he turns it around to us, and he says, the person who loves his life will lose it. What does he mean by the person who loves his life? I don't think what he means by that is somebody who is joyful and happy. Because what does the Bible tell us we ought to be? Joyful people. We ought to have joy and delight. In who? In Jesus. In God for the incredible life he has given us. So he's not saying y'all need to be joyless, suffering, unhappy, miserable people. So what does he mean by somebody who loves his life? In other words, what I think he means is that the person who loves himself, the person, in a sense, who denies God's sovereign rule and reign and rights over their life, and they elevate their own self-interest, their own rights, their own rules over God's rule and reign, which really at the heart of it is idolatry, And if you really think, like, what is the root of all sin? It's idol worship. In other words, when he says, when you put yourself first, when you are the center of your universe, where you refuse to submit yourself to God's sovereign rule and reign and the rights that he claims over you, and you become your own sovereign ruler, and you follow your own rights because you're all about your rights, The only thing that's going to happen to you is destruction. He causes his own destruction. And if you think about it, what happens on our world? Aren't we the center of our own universes? And if everybody is the center of their own universes, the only person they can always think about is themselves protecting their own rights and their own privileges, and they don't care about other people, what do we end up with? A bunch of sovereign people waging war against one another because your sovereignty is impeding my sovereignty. And the only thing that happens is destruction. But there's another way in contrast. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And again, he does not mean the one who hates his life. He's like, woe is me. I'm just an unhappy person. I'm a miserable person. I hate it here on this planet Earth. I can't wait to die right now because my life is just miserable. No, he doesn't mean it like that. But rather, he is saying the person who constantly denies himself, or maybe use a better metaphor that Jesus uses, the person who carries his cross and follows him, the person who does not always choose or pursue his self-interest, who's not the center of his own universe, but rather is willing to lay down his life and his rights and his privileges for the betterment of others and for Jesus Christ. That person will experience an eternal life. And if you think about it, if you are going to experience eternal life, what does that generate in your heart? Joy. Happiness. And what we have to understand is the choices between life and destruction is not simply an act of self-denial. Like if you walk out of here thinking, I just got to deny myself. That's not the answer, because here's what's happened. When you deny yourself of one idol, what are you going to do? 
You're going to replace it with another idol. What do you do with some of your addictions? You kick that addiction to replace it with another addiction. And where does that lead you? It leads you still addicted, just a different product. It leads you still to idol worship, just a different idol. So what does that mean? What that means is we can't just deny ourselves for denial's sake to be better. But rather what it should mean is that the endless shameful focus on self must be replaced by the focus on Jesus Christ. And I think this is where many of us miss it. This is what moralism teaches you. Moralism teaches you be better, do better, deny yourself. Christian people should be unhappy. If you're having too much fun, that's a bad thing. Because you've got to deny yourself. And really in that part as you deny yourself, who are you worshiping? You're worshiping yourself for denying yourself. And you're looking, looking down on everybody else who's all willy-nilly and you're like, oh, they lack self-discipline. They should be like me, which means you're still the center of your universe. But what brings great joy and delight to the children of God in denying themselves is that they have replaced that denial of self and that focus on Jesus Christ, which is the better and the greatest treasure. And this is why Jesus tells the story of a man who runs into the field. He stumbles over a treasure. And this treasure is so valuable, he goes home, he sells everything, and you're thinking, oh, what a sacrifice. But it's like, no, he's exchanging a better model for a lesser model. Is that a sacrifice? No. And so to deny yourself, and to pick up your cross and to follow him, to say no to yourself, to not make yourself the center of the universe. Yes, is a sacrifice, but in itself it's not really a sacrifice because what do you gain at the end of it? The glorious treasures of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says in verse 25, the second part of verse 25, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. And I love this. Here's the promise. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So as we deny ourselves and we replace it with Jesus Christ as we follow him. Where is he? Where we are. And what would the Father do to us? He will honor us. So two blessings. You get Jesus Christ, and the Father honors you. It's not a sacrifice. It's a smart investment. This is the call that Jesus gives, the call to follow him, the call not to chase after success and achievements and hopes and dreams, but a call of humility and sacrifice, a call to die. And as Christ has died for us, we too die in this world in order to have life. In other words, we 
die to our plans and our hopes and our dreams. And as we lay it down for Jesus Christ, we in return get Christ, and there's nothing better we can get. Like, I'm, I'm done. One more comparison, then I'm done, okay? I know we're getting hungry, and I, I told people we're going to keep this short so we can enjoy ourselves afterwards. But again, so, so think about the, 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 the two contrasts between our world and King Jesus. The ruler of this world, a.k.a. Satan and all of his goonies, what do they communicate to us? They, they tell us, make life all about you. Pursue your happiness, your dreams, put your interest above others, and live for yourself because YOLO. You only live once. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for our world? Last time I checked, and I don't like to check anymore because it's just depressing, there's destruction everywhere. There's wars, there's bloodshed, there's oppression, there's depression, there's tyrannical rulers. And some of you might be one of them. This is what's going on. But then here's King Jesus, what does he say? He says, die to self. Don't make yourself the center of the universe. Make me the center of the universe. Take your focus off of you and put your focus on me. For the way to life, for the way to glory is death. And what does he promise us? He promises us the end of destruction with restoration. The end of war with peace. The promise of righteousness, victorious and a humble king who will rule over us because he laid down his life for us and his rule will extend to the ends of the earth and all we can say is hail King Jesus. And so the question that you have to answer, which king are you going to submit to? The king of this earth that's going to lead to destruction. You've experienced it. You've seen it. Or the king of kings who has inaugurated his kingdom and he is coming back to fully consummate it and all the promises that he has made will be yes in him. Let me pray for us. Our Lord, it is mind-blowing just to think of what type of king you are, that you are righteous, victorious, and humble, that you rule over us not because you've conquered us, but you lay down your life for us, and that all war will end peace will be proclaimed and your rule will extend to the ends of the earth and you will be honored not by sitting on the throne but by dying on the cross and you tell us that the way to life the way to glory the way to honor is to die 
to die to self, to submit ourselves under your rule. Lord, you know us, you know our hearts. You know the idols that we bow down to, the idols that we cling to. You know the areas of our life that we refuse to submit to you. Can you help us this morning to die to? Can you help us this morning to surrender those things so that we may experience life, an abundant life, an eternal life, a joyful life? Lord, can you help us to be no longer deceived by the empty promises of this world and of the rulers of this world? Can you help us, our eyes to be open and see the reality of the destruction all around us? Can you help us to stop believing the lies and keep our eyes on you and cling to all the promises that you've made to us, that you are with us, and that as we faithfully serve you, we will experience life and we will be honored by the Father. And so help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table, we are reminded of what our King has done for us. As he died in our place, laid down his life, his body was given to us, his blood was shed for us. And that we get to sit at his table not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done on our behalf. And this part of our service, what that should be doing to us, it should be reminding us of the promises we have in Jesus. When we're tempted to take our eyes off of him and put our eyes on ourselves, this table helps us to reorient our eyes, our hearts, our minds. Because what we get to see what we get to taste, what we get to experience is our king laying down his life for us and we're reminded of the hope and the assurance that we have in him. And so as we distribute these elements, meditate on the assurance that you have in Christ, the life that he lived that you could not live, the death that he died that you were supposed to die, and the wonderful, glorious promises that you have in Christ, that you are at this table as sons and daughters, not something that you need to accomplish, but something that has already been accomplished for you. So come and eat and feast and be satisfied in King Jesus. Let me pray for us and let's distribute these elements. Lord, help us to meditate, fix our eyes on you. Overwhelm us with these glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I was uh, reading our call to worship in Psalm 22. And, and the verse that really hit me is verse 26. It says, the humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And if you think about it, the humble will eat and be satisfied. What's Jesus' invitation to his people? Come, 
Come and feast on me. Eat my body, drink my blood. Come and be satisfied in me and who I am and what I've done for you. And the promise is, you will live forever. But what it requires on our behalf to come to Jesus and feast is to humble ourselves because we have to acknowledge that I need him. I am hungry and parched without him. Only he can satisfy. And so this morning we are reminded the Lord fulfills, the Lord satisfies. He is the living bread. He is the water of life. Come, let us eat. It's his body that's given to us. Eat it as you feast on Christ. His blood that was shed for you, drink it and feast on Christ, the new covenant you have in him. Can you take time right now and just thank the Lord that he satisfies and that he fulfills? Thank the Lord that life is found in him and him alone. And ask the Lord, can you, Lord, help me to praise you forever. Help me to see my constant desperate need for you. Help me, Lord, when I am hungry and thirsty and unsatisfied. Help me not to chase after the empty things that do not provide, but chase after you that provides and fulfills. Lord, we thank you that you've given yourself to us. We thank you for what you've provided for us and the promises that you've given us. Lord, we confess that we are a people that are so easily distracted. We get distracted by the worries of life, by the things that think that fulfill and satisfy, and when we do achieve them, we feel empty. Can you help us to throw off the things that so easily entangles us and ensnares us? Can you help us to fix our eyes on you and run this race that's set before us with great endurance? knowing that we already have obtained the prize that is you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.